Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. At some point, there's a switch between the external motivation and that internal motivation that you have to decide, I want to paint this, or this is what I want my body of work to look like. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that helps you design your own unique artistic path. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, and today we're going to get some great guidance from the voice you just heard, Brian Miller. In the conversation, you'll learn the difference between oil and acrylic and which you might want to use if you're just getting started, plus a great breakdown of how to create stronger shadows in your work, and always a whole lot more. If you get to the end of the conversation and you're not ready to be finished, join us in the Podcast Art Club on Patreon, where you'll have access to the Extended Cut bonus conversation, where Miller talks about finding your style and gives some great advice for how to get started strengthening your sense of composition. Head to patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast to learn more. A quick additional note, in the episode, you'll hear Miller occasionally say we. And the we he is referring to is his wife and fellow artist, Debbie Miller, who has been a guest several times on the show. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 56. And as always, I start the show asking Miller how he got started in art. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on here. I got started in art long, long time ago, because I've been an artist my whole life. Elementary school, I started wanting to be an animator. I, I did a book report on Thomas Edison, of all people, and that led to movie motion pictures that led to animation, and then I just got hooked. So my desire to be an artist from the very beginning was to be an animator. I then went to college, art school. I studied animation and filmmaking and have degrees in that. I got out of there and had no job prospects in the 80s. It was pre-computer days, so there wasn't a lot of opportunity. So I started doing desktop publishing and taught myself graphic design and worked for almost 30 years as a commercial artist. And as my commercial art got more technical, more towards the IT side of the house, I had a longing to do more art and creativity. And I started doing workshops about six years ago, 2015, 2016, and started doing a lot of workshops on art journaling and like introduction to painting. And then we took a class with Lisa Daria on painting flowers and it was a daily painting. And then that was in 2016, March 22nd, and we've been doing daily painting ever since. So big picture, that's how I got started. When you got back into art, because you had gone to art school and so had some background in that, was it frustrating, like thinking back from sort of like the skills you had had then and now starting back up again? Was that hard to do? Yes, it was hard because I thought I knew how to paint from taking all of my foundation classes in college in the 80s. But I had spent basically 20 to 30 years of not painting 
or of, of doing assignments. And I'd do a little bit of illustration, but it really wasn't painting. I didn't get my hands dirty so much. It was doing a lot of stuff digitally, doing it on the computer, still creative and still solving design problems, but it wasn't painting. It wasn't that plasticity that you have with the materials. And I think I had to sort of start over. So I consider myself a lifelong artist, but I'm a fairly new painter you know, the last six, seven, eight years, whatever it is, I painted all my life, but not as a painter. So I go back and look at the 2000 plus paintings that I've done. And, you know, one through a hundred are really, I thought I knew what I was doing, but I'm glad I persisted because there, there is a learning growth and, you know, oh, that's what happens when you mix colors. Oh, that it was just lack of confidence. You mentioned you were doing lessons. When you're an adult painting, you make all of the rules. Like You decide your schedule. Was it hard to figure out how art fit into your life? Well, art always fit into my life, but it was frustrating art, you know, because I would spend my creative energy solving work problems and then I would have nothing left for myself. Then I would say, okay, I'm gonna paint or create art or do something different on the weekends. And the weekends got there and you, you ran out of time, you know, and you didn't have the commitment. So I think coming back to it as an adult later in life, coming back to the painting practice, the fine art practice versus the commercial practice, the fine art practice, you do have to make some goals and you have to decide what's important. What is it that you want to make sure that you are doing and what do you want when you're done? You know, you don't have the assignments, but in some ways, let's say you do a hashtag challenge or you do another project, you do get an assignment because you're meeting someone else's expectations. You're working in a structure that someone else provides, whether that's you go to a workshop for a weekend, you're learning something from that artist that's teaching it. So you are putting yourself under their teaching, their rules, their ideas. But at some point, I think part of the artist's journey is going from that first struggle of, oh my gosh, all this materials are new. Everything is new to, okay, I have all the materials now. Now I don't know how to make those materials do anything to, okay, tell me what to do. And then you know, critique me and grow me in that way. But at some point there's a switch between the external motivation and that internal motivation that you have to decide, I want to paint this, or this is what I want my body of work to look like. Here's where I'm heading with it. Where are you on the journey? And you can go back and forth. I often like to take classes still because it gets you thinking something different. I like to try new materials that I haven't worked with in a while because it gets you to think different. It keeps you fresh. But at some point you get a premise from someone else or you get a premise from internal and that kind of directs where you go. Do you think it's useful to have an idea of where you are? I guess the question is, did you ever feel or do you ever see your students feel like an impatience? Like, I want to be there, so therefore I'm frustrated with where I am, even though all of us have to go through all of it. Yes. And I truthfully think you never get to the there. You're always on the road. You're always on the journey. And you may get to plateaus where you start to create something, you get some success with it. It's coming together. It's gelling. It's the way you want it to be. Then it doesn't line up with it anymore. Then you get dissatisfaction. Then you try something new and it's, it's harder, but then at some point it clicks and you're satisfied again. Then you're on a plateau for a little bit. And then you don't want to stay on that plateau because it gets boring doing the same thing every time. I love the idea of getting to the point that I know what I'm doing, 
but I never can stay there long enough to feel completely confident and just really stay in that location. Cause I like to always be kind of challenged. So what's next? But I think that's one reason I like to work in series. So my daily practice is, you know, get up and I'll paint a small six inch by six inch square. And it's almost always is a flower arrangement or it's a still life. It's something in my studio. That's sort of, you know, practice that's every day. And you can look at it and say, here's the last two weeks. So here's 14 paintings that all look together and you can see the composition might be similar. They may look alike. It might be different arrangements, but there's something similar. It might have a couple that don't work at all, a couple that work really well but they're in kind of a theme. When I get up in the morning, I don't want to think about what am I going to paint? I'm just going to paint. Weekends, you try to have more time and you can experiment more. And that's where you get into that, maybe break those plateaus. Maybe during the week, it's you're on a plateau for a while. And then come weekends, when you have a little more time to think about art and to work on something, go do something else, come back, work on a little more, let it noodle a bit. You can have those growth edges where you just really expand what type of art you're making. But it sounds like you needed to find a system that worked for you and that daily painting helped you establish that heartbeat to your practice. Absolutely. I am a a system thinker. I like to have sequences. I like to have checklists. I like to have know where I'm going with something. I may not know how it's going to look, but I need to know that framework. So that is really important to me. I think that's one reason why I really like sequence. Sequence or series, because you do one and then you know you're going to be on that for a little while. So you're going to make a second painting, a third painting, a fourth painting, or fifth painting that are similar, that they relate. They could go on a wall and they all look like they're together. It's not Okay. Day one was a puppy. Day two was a flower. Day three was a cup. That's fine to do that, but I don't think that way. I think more in the multiples and I like to be able to see in the multiples. So much of painting something is learning to see it, but that doesn't happen quickly. So by working in a series, are you giving yourself a way to also see something more clearly, which sort of eases that whatever innate anxiety we sometimes have? I'm not sure I would do that all the time, but I think sometimes that's true. I rarely will do the same arrangement four or five times in a row. Occasionally I do that, but typically I don't. I will do six different flower arrangements centered on my six inch by six inch square with the horizon line right about the same spot on each one, but they're different arrangements. It's a different base, different arrangement of flowers, etc. So I'm not doing a sequence necessarily to relook at the same object. Now, as I'm saying that, what I've been doing lately in the studio, I've been painting two or three pieces of broccoli. I probably have 50 charcoal drawings of broccoli all around my studio. So I might be doing that, but that I look at as my experimental work where I spend more time on the weekends, drawing the broccoli, letting it sit, coming back the next week, drawing more broccoli. And I'm just using broccoli because it's easy. It kind of looks tree-like. It's something that I mean, I don't have a huge fascination with broccoli, but it's just, it's one object that I keep looking at. So I said no, but then that's not what I'm doing. So I'm going back and forth. So this is a little bit adjacent, but you create a ton of work, daily painting, weekend painting. So how do you keep just the number of things you create from overwhelming your space and then keeping you from working? Are you talking about overwhelming the physical limitations of the space? one avenue, which is hopefully they find homes outside of our home. So sell, ship, and deliver. So that's one way of clearing inventory. 
The second, and I'm, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but you know, we have a hallway that goes down to our guest bathroom. The hallway has 600 little thumbtacks on it. So we've got tons of our six by sixes just hanging down there. And then we have a lot of big Tupperware containers, Rubbermaid containers that we store the paintings in, the six by sixes, and they are literally filling up the guest shower. So we just have them stacked in there and we probably have, I would say 25 of those. Now, that means when we have guests, we have to move them out and stuff, but that's just, it does become overwhelming. That is why, I mean, from a, a practical perspective, when I'm doing some of the experimenting work, I like working on paper because you can put it all in a drawer. So you can have 25 or 30 pieces of paper. And some of these I've been doing large 20 by 30, you know, larger size pieces because going from six inches by six inches every day, which is our usual practice up to some larger scale is, I mean, two feet by three feet is huge. They're not quite three feet, but they're still, they're huge. It's like doing a billboard or something in comparison. But I've been doing a lot of those on paper so that they can be stored in flat files and just stacked up. But it sounds like you have a system for it. We try, yes. You can't see this, but above me is just uh, just like a pile of canvases and boards. It's perfect. Yeah. There's <laughs> oh, yeah. a starting point for the last couple of weeks. I just shove them up on the wall. So, so good. So you paint in both oils and acrylics. How different or how similar are they for you? Well, the way I paint, they are very similar. I started off in acrylic about halfway through. I went to oils. I did terrible in oils. I went back to acrylics and then I took another oil class and I kind of got the gist of it. And right now my preference is to be in oils for the daily paintings. Now there might be name variations, but I use the same family of colors between oil and acrylic. And the way I paint, it's very much the same process. However, I like the oils better because the colors are truer. Acrylics tend to dry a little bit darker. So when you're done, they might look a little muddy or flatter afterwards if you don't plan for that. With the oils, I just like the butteriness of, of the paint. I like the thickness of the paint. I like the smell of the paint, even though we use odorless turpentines and stuff like that, but it just feels better. I like the way it feels. But ask me again in two weeks, I might be right back on acrylic saying, oh, I've been doing acrylic projects. So I, I wear both hats. Especially for someone getting started, but even someone who is intermediate or advanced, why do both instead of focus on one? And in part, I ask because like, we only have so many hours in a day. So do you ever feel like that's splitting your focus? Well, I don't think it splits your focus. I think what it comes down to, I mean, normally my process is if I have a show or something I need to deliver something to in two days then I'm using acrylic because it has to dry in time. If I'm doing something where I'm introducing collage or doing layers, I would probably stick with acrylic to the most part. If I'm doing something that I don't have a, a target audience for right away, or I have enough time for it, I'm gonna stay in the oils. But the way that I paint, there's not a lot of difference between mixing it in oils or mixing it in acrylics. I don't do glazing. I don't do a lot of layering. I mean, that's not my normal. Normally I paint all in one session, wet on wet. So my acrylics are wet while I'm painting and then they're dry. I, I usually do not go back into them. You know, when I'm done painting in the half hour, hour or whatever it is for the six by six, I'm done. I just put it away to put it to the side and move on to the next one. So my approach to the two mediums is very similar, 
I use a lot of either gel medium in the oils or I use a lot of matte medium in the acrylics and paint with it. And it's just how do I rinse and clean up my brushes, really? Do you have one that you suggest to people just getting started? If you're just getting started and you don't have a preference, I'd say start with acrylic because acrylic is water-based. If you don't like something, you can paint over top of it. I think it's a friendlier medium to jump into. And it's a, I, I'm really not sure of the, the price, but I think it's a little bit cheaper as far as the paints on paint for paint price, but that may not be as much of a difference. I think that's just an easier way of getting in. Now, if you're saying, well, that's not true artists use oils and amateurs use acrylic or something like that. First of all, I, I don't agree with that concept, but you sometimes hear, you know, oils are worth more than acrylics or something, which, you know, I just, I don't buy. But if, if you've got a hang up and you really want to do oils and that's where your passion, do it. You know, don't let that be a barrier to getting into painting because it, you can do some things different in oils than you can in acrylics, and you can do some things different in acrylics than you can in oils. But the bulk of it, if you're just going to paint, you can pick either of those mediums and explore it. And if you're just getting started, pick one, settle with it, work with it. And if you don't like it, then switch. If you don't like it, switch back. You know, you just made that comment about like real art is in oil. Where does that come from? I think bad marketing. You know, there's art school terminology because like I know when I was in high school, I went to a after school art program that was in the next town over and had to take a bus to it. And you went in there and they were doing life drawing. I was just doing a regular drawing class, but they had life drawing and you, I could smell the turpentine. And it's like, ah, this is the real artist. Then I went back to my high school and we had, you know, temper paint or something. So there was that thought oh, real artists do this or or not. I mean, you, you look at someone like David Hockney, who has painted in acrylics and has painted in oils and painted in watercolors and sketches and iPads. It's art. You know, it's not the medium is in some ways, I don't want to say less important, but the artifice of real painting is this and fake painting is this, I think is bad. What I would say is go out and buy the best paint you can afford. I don't care if that's oil or acrylic, but don't buy the acrylic that you get 20 tubes for $9. Buy the ones that are $9 a tube, or if you can't afford the $9 a tube, get the $5 a tube one, but get the best paint you can afford on your budget for either oils or acrylic, because that's going to give you the best, better paint that you can work with. And if you work with better paint, you really can't paint without paint. So invest in the best materials that you can that meet your budget and go forward and don't get hung up. I mean, even me saying, talking about the oil versus acrylic is probably my bias coming from an art school. I'm not sure if other artists like, you know, Debbie, my wife, who, you know, she started painting late. She probably doesn't think twice about that argument of oil versus acrylic, only when it spills over for me. So it might just be one of those art school professional snobbery things that just flow over. And I know I get hung up on it, but it's probably not real. You work in a limited palette and you mentioned your family of colors. Could you just list off your colors? Sure. Big picture. I use two blues, two reds, two yellows. I use white and I, since we do a lot of flowers, I do a magenta as well, because you can't always mix the pinks right. And for my yellows, cadmium yellow light, cadmium yellow medium. My reds are alizarin crimson, quadacridone red. Then I use quadacridone magenta. Then my blues are phthalo blue, 
in ultramarine blue. And I have been primarily using a warm white in the oils, which is it's just a little off from white. And uh, I haven't really found an equivalent in the acrylics on that. So titanium white is fine. You know, it's just that titanium white is brighter, brighter white. Occasionally I'll use that in oils if I really need to get that little pop of a white, white, I'll pull that in. But that's my colors. Occasionally I'll introduce an orange or a gray or something just to mix up my thought process. But most of the time, those are the colors I use. They're the ones I start with and I mix everything from them. You said in your oils, you use like a gel medium. Yeah. yeah I use a solvent-free gel medium in the oils and it speeds up the drying time and it changes the flow a little bit. So sometimes if I need it just a little bit thicker, once I get my painting started, I don't mix any turpentine back into my paints. I just use that for cleaning at that point. But then on the acrylic side, I'll occasionally use some matte medium just to stretch out and to change the flow of my acrylic paint. And same thing with that. I don't go back into the water except for cleaning the brush. I don't really mix water in with the acrylics very much. A little bit that's just residual on the brush itself because that will break down the paint and make it less permanent. So I prefer to use the matte medium. For your limited palette, how long did it take for you to feel like you had really mastered those colors working together? Over a year. Okay. So I've been using that same palette since 2016. So we're at six plus years, if I'm doing my math correctly. And I'd say the first year I was constantly stumbling because I think before that I never mixed paints. It was what color was out of the tube. And maybe if I needed a little darker, I would add the complementary color or I would darken or lighten what was in the tube. But once we switched to limited palette, I didn't have a tube anymore, a tube color anymore. It was all up to me. And it did take a while to feel comfortable. And even now I'll go through phases where it's like, oh, I'm using way too much Elysian Crimson right now. And you can see that the series of paintings that I did, I did a number over at Christmas time that all had this like series of red to them. And I was like, it doesn't work right. I don't really like where that went, but I could tell I was like having tunnel vision to, to overemphasizing that one color on my palette. And I was overusing it and mixing a little bit of that in everything. But you can look at it and see, and if you get enough distance from it, you can go back and say, oh, I did use too much there. So now I can shift it. Because once you've got these basic colors, you've got seven colors, and then I mix up my own black based on those colors. But you basically have those seven colors. And the way I think of them is you kind of make a pool of colors that you keep moving around your color palette and your painting. If I'm approaching painting a flower arrangement, I typically will start with the darkest greens. So I'm, I've sketched in, in black. I take that black and then I start adding some blue and some yellow into it. And I'll mix, depending on my mood, I, I tend to go to the ultramarine blue more than phthalo blue, but I'll grab some of that and mix it. So I start making a blue green and then I need that brighter. So I take that same kind of you know edges of that puddle. I'm not taking one puddle and keep remixing it. I'm taking parts from it mixing the next color, parts from it, mixing the next color. So I kind of go around and get all of my greens so they all look harmonious. I did not know that until I did 300, 400 paintings or something. It took me a while to get to that point. Color mixing isn't just yellow plus blue equals green. It's how do you manage those colors on your palette to make a painting and that's not necessarily intuitive, like, oh, there's a really big step in there. This might take me a year to learn. Yeah, it's not, it's not paint by numbers type of thing where you put the green here, you put the, the other. 
it becomes your personality. Like, which greens do you see? Because your eyes may see something different than what my eyes see. So I may pick up on 20 shades of green. You may pick up on 10. I may get 10 blue and you might get 20 blues. Our eyes are physically different. Someone was coming and looking at our art and Debbie had her art up and I had my art up. And the person looked at Debbie and said, you're using a Brian green over here. And we both looked at each other like, what do you mean? It's like, you know, the green you mixed up here is a Brian green. That's not your normal Debbie green. This is a Brian green. And it's like, it's true. Cause how I mix the colors, how I get to my formulas, it was a certain way that I've just naturally done. And I can't really tell you, okay, one part this, one part this, one part this, one part this, because it is intuitive. But when I'm mixing a green, I'm going to start with my dirty brush that just did the black. I know I'm going to reach for ultramarine blue to start and then get cadmium yellow medium to mix in. That's my starting point. And then it's like, oh, I wanted to get a little more earthy. I'm going to get some lizard and crimson. You know, so like I know those pieces. You may have a whole different approach. You might get a very similar green, but you might use phthalo blue and you might use the cadmium yellow light to get to the same point. I have a way of getting there. And it's like, you know, sort of moving these puddles around my flower arrangements and, or my paintings, but tend to be flower arrangements and to get those rich, dark, and all the beautiful variations of the green, but they're all in the Brian green family. What I find really interesting about what you're saying is you don't look at every green leaf and start from scratch every time. You have a place you start, which then may change wildly based on what you see, but you have an anchor so that you don't have to figure out each time you face a flower, like, oh, where do I start for this? Correct. There is a plan of approach that I have just through practice and confidence and, you know, this worked, this didn't, you know, trial and error experiments of how I'm going to approach something. Now, I don't do that all the time, but when I'm just getting up and starting painting, that's how I'm going to approach it. And I have to consciously do something to shock my system if I'm going to do it differently. And and one of the ways I shock my system is I'll take orange straight out of the tube and add it to my palette. So that introduces a new color. And then you have to, you can't go into just muscle memory and do the painting by rote anymore. You've got to be rethinking it. So then you are looking at it. But the thing is, you know, with a limited palette, to me, it brings comfort because I like getting myself kind of backed into a corner and figure out how to get out of it. And I don't want to say, well, I can't do this painting because I don't have my seventh variation of green. You know, I'm going to just make something work for that and I'll make it there. You can't get every single green with just those six colors. You are going to have to start introducing more yellows, more blues, more reds, more other variations of green. But I loved starting with a very minimal palette because that gets you to learn how to paint yourself out of that corner, how to get yourself started. Then you can introduce new elements in one at a time if you want to expand it because then you know why you're adding that color. And then you don't get overwhelmed because now you've got a palette of 30 colors. If you start off as a new artist or a returning artist or you know switching mediums and you go get a palette and you get 30 different tubes of paint. So you've got six shades of green, six shades of yellow, six shades of red, six shades of blue. You're not going to know where to start. So minimizing it, starting with that, and then expand as you need or contract as you need, but it allows you to really get to know your friends and those paints becomes friends because like I know, I know how I'm going to mix an orange that I love and I'm going to mix that every time out of my colors right here. And that's my starting point. You know, if I was doing a pumpkin where I needed that certain orange, I might need to go get that orange to bring it onto my palette. But 
that's the exception. That's the special case, but I know why I'm getting it as opposed to I can't paint because I don't have all the colors. So it gives you freedom. You mentioned that you mix your own black. What do you mix for a black? My black recipe, see if I can remember the official parts because it changes every time I mix it. But I basically use one part phthalo blue, two parts alizarin crimson, and just a touch of cadmium yellow medium. And that's my go-to black. And if I'm deciding I want that black a little bluer, I'll put more phthalo blue in it. If I want that black to be a little redder, then I would go with more alizarin crimson. So it varies a a little bit. It's it's not a true black, 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 but it's a really, really dark color that has characters of all the other players on my palette. So it always goes with it harmoniously. We're going to transition officially into process a little bit. Could you give us a bird's eye view of your process? Okay. So a normal day in my daily painting practice is grab the flower arrangement that my wife has put together, except going with her to the grocery store to get the flowers. I don't put them together. I just grab whichever one and we have 20 or 30 around the house. Well, maybe not not that many. There has been that many, but half a dozen to a dozen arrangements around the house. So I grab one, put it next to my easel and start painting. Okay. Now that's really, really big picture. So I'm looking for the one that morning that I haven't painted already this week. I am attracted to. So at the end of the week, I've got less choices and the flowers are drooping and changing and all that. So I work at the easel and I stand while working at the easel because I feel comfortable with that. I have a table next to it that I put the arrangement on. Sometimes put a towel down, some I'll put a stage behind it so that I don't get all the extraneous noise around it. Then I take out my six by six uh, wood cradle board that has been pre-primed with red gesso and I do my initial sketch. Now in the beginning, I did my initial sketch with charcoal, but lately I've been doing it with a really liquefied version of my black. So I take my black, I add either, this is where I will use the turpentine at that point to thin it out. So it's really fluid and it'll dry quickly. I'll do my initial layout and I'm talking a, oh, maybe, maybe a 30 second sketch of where things go. Bottom, here's the horizon line. Here's the one rose here to the right, this flower droops. You just put the big picture in. That's it. Then I start painting. So I start by painting. I I usually block in where the shadows are going to go. And then I start from the darks. I put the darks down. And this is where I almost always start with my dark greens to kind of anchor it. And I'm usually painting the subject before I paint the background or the ground. Because the subject, first of all, I want to focus on something that I want to get success right away. And I want to feel good about. And by doing the greenery, gets me started. So I usually go from the greens, then I go to the flowers themselves and the flowers are then being layered on top of the greenery. So wet on wet, you're building layers. Then I'll usually paint the vase or the jar or whatever. And if it's glass, I'll be really excited because I love painting glass and where the stems are showing through and you get all that levels and reflections. Then I'll paint the, usually the ground and then the background. And when I do the ground, then the ground shadow, the background, the background shadow, and then go back and do touch-ups on the painting. That's a big picture. And that usually takes me anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes. So it's a very quick practice. Let's say you're working in the greens of the leaves. Do you build up each section to its highest highlight or do you work on the darks everywhere and then go to the mids everywhere? 
typically, if it's a nice bunchy flower, not just a few sticks where it's it's there, but I'll build up all those dark areas. And this is where, when I was talking about earlier, where I would mix up a dark blue-green, that becomes that really dark shadowed area. So I'm looking at my actual still life. I'm trying to figure out where are the darkest greens and lay that down. Now, I typically will not paint each leaf at this point or each stem. I just sort of give a general block in of all of the colors there. Here's the shadow area. Here's the shadow. So I'm going from dark to light. So then I take that same puddle of green that's really blue, blue forward, start adding more cadmium yellow into it. So it kind of brightens that green up. And then I'm starting to build the leaves that are in front. I'm sort of going from back to front. If I overdo it, if I put too much of the lighter greens, I'll then go back to the darker greens and put it back on to kind of push it back. So I'm working in multiple layers back and forth to kind of build up all those greens everywhere. Now, I'm mostly at this point, I'm focused on the greens in the flower arrangement. Assuming that this is a one vase, simple tabletop, simple background, and one flower arrangement, I would get all those greens done. I would probably paint the flower colors next, then go down to the vase. But the trick is you find the darkest spot in the flowers. Is that darker than what's on the vase? Is that darker than what's in the background? Is that darker than what's on the ground? Because you have to remember that because when you get to those points, you've got to make that same relationship. So that's the value relationship where it needs to be just as dark. An easy explanation of that is if you've got a shadow that's on the table and then that shadow is also on the wall that's behind, it has to look like it's the same value of the shadow. Because if it looks really dark on the table, but really light on the wall, it's going to look like two different shadows. So you're going to lose the believability of your environment when you do that. So you've got to keep in mind, your shadow may not be the darkest spot. It might be the dark areas that are inside the vase might be darker than your cast shadow, but you just have to keep those shadows so they all fit within the same scene. Well, let me ask a question about that. So if you have a vase and it's casting a shadow on a tablecloth, but the tablecloth, let's say, is a dark color, and then the wall that also catches the cast shadow is a light color, Mm -hmm. how do you handle those? Let's assume that the shadow is the same density on the tabletop as it is on the wall. Okay, so it's it's not two different light sources or whatever. So it's got the same density. Now, the ratio or the relationship of the dark ground to the dark ground shadow is the same relationship as the lighter wall to the lighter wall shadow. If you mix up your dark ground and you, let's just say, put two blobs of black in it to get your shadow. Okay, so you're two blobs darker than your main color. In theory, your back wall should be two blobs difference, you know, so it's whatever your wall color is, it should be about two dark shades more than what is, is there. It's an optical effect. So you're going to have to look at it and see, and this is where oil has an advantage to acrylic because acrylic will dry a little bit darker and it'll shift once it's dry and you won't see it while you're painting it. In oils, you can see it in real time while you're painting it and it doesn't shift as it dries. So that was advantage and disadvantage there, but this is one where I think oil gets the, the plus on for the color shift there. For you, how long did it take you to find a repeatable process? And then what does it allow you to do as an artist? I would say a year, 300, 400 paintings, some amount of time to kind of get your systems worked out. The logistics of when are you going to do it? We're early birds, so we get up early and do it before going off in the day. That's our practice. So those systems, it probably took a good year to figure out what works and what doesn't work. 
the system that we wanted to put in place was one that would allow us to just get up and get started and not have to clear off the kitchen table, pull the easel out, get all the paint set up, and then have to clear it later in the day. We wanted a system that was just there. And you know, it took a while. It's like when you move into a house, you move in and then you set it up the way you think it is. And then you realize it doesn't work. So you move things around. Then you realize that doesn't work. Then you move things around again. And then once you get them settled, they pretty much stay that way for a long time. What I hear you saying also is that you didn't try one thing, it didn't work, and you thought like, well, guess that means I'm I'm never going to be a painter. Well, yes. I think that's the thing you need to know is the encouragement and being kind to yourself. Because if you're going to go down this route, you can't just say, oh, I made one painting and it was terrible, so I stopped. My daily painting stopped at one. Or my daily painting stopped at two. And I don't really care about daily painting, but just whatever your painting practice is. You have to be willing to go through that whole painful process and at the same time, be kind to yourself because you're not going to have successes all the time. You're going to be growing, you're going to be failing, and you're going to be succeeding. And I think you should be failing. If you're always doing success, then you're on that plateau and you haven't pushed yourself. Now it's hard because I often will do this. You post something and you get like two likes on Instagram. So it's like, well, that's dumb. I better stop that. And it's like, no, if I'm going down that route, I need to go down that route. That's the direction I need to go in and see where it goes because it may not be where you end up, but something may grow out of that, that influences back in your regular practice. So you've got to be kind to yourself and let yourself let yourself stumble. How do you encourage yourself to do this? Because I'm fortunate because both Debbie and I are doing this at the same time and we're doing it together. Our whole life is based around setting up our house with a studio in it. We have an outside studio. We do our teaching together. We do our daily paintings, not the same paintings, but we do them at the same time together. And now we both are wanting to experiment and going in different directions. And we're both, we're on the same bus. We have a built-in cheerleader for each other. So you need to find somebody. If you're stumbling right away, my uh, view is to find a partner of some form that can cheer you on because it's hard, lonely work and you've got to be kind to yourself. You've got to find a way of staying encouraged, getting encouragement and staying engaged in the process that does take a while. That's what I think is so powerful about classes. I always thought that you went to classes to learn skills. And yeah, like I learned a bunch of skills in your guys's class. But also what I got was seeing that other people were struggling in exactly the same way I was and that everyone was really encouraging. Like, I don't think I realized how much the encouragement piece had sort of been missing. Right. And it's really important. Yeah. I think there's the the fantasy of the fine artist working by himself. I guess it's sort of like the American cowboy myth or something, but alone in his studio, struggling and not understood and, and dies without anyone seeing his work. And there's like some weird fantasy associated with that or something. But the reality is we all want to be seen. We want to be engaged with others. We want to talk about art and share art and connect with others that are on this creative journey. And we all can rise together and encourage each other and are going the same direction, even if we're, I mean, Debbie and I have commented because art desks here at the house are two feet apart. You know, I mean, we've got a desk separating us basically and my easel, her easel and all that. But when we're actually doing the painting, 
she could be a million miles away. So when you're in the zone of the creating, it's just you and that six inch space in front of you, and there's nothing else around. And then you kind of come back to the surface and then you can say, okay, well, what do you think of this? Does it work? Or I'm, I'm not sure about this and get some feedback. And then you go back into your little tunnel vision. So even when you're in a collaborative space, like a workshop or a shared studio space, you still have to make all those decisions on your own. And it's intense. So it's it's really nice to be able to have some way of sharing that after you, you just sprinted for an hour on something and get some opinions, get some thoughts. And even if the opinions are just, oh, it looks great, keep going. That's enough to kind of, oh, okay, it's worth it. It's something, because if, if you just say, I'm going to make a bunch of paintings and I'm going to start painting every day, oh, I'm going to sleep in today and well, I'll start next week. It's just hard to get going. So you need to find someone to be a partner with you. Do you consider yourself a loose painter? Yes, but I am not overly fussy or detailed. I try to get the gist of what's there. I am surprised at how much of an observational painter I am because I really like to look at something in order to paint it as opposed to painting from my imagination, which that was kind of like the struggle because if I just go and say, oh, I'm going to paint a picture of a Western scene of Arizona it's going to look really flat unless I have some experience of doing it because I really oversimplify. But when I get to look at it, I still simplify, but I don't oversimplify because I can see more things when I'm looking at the arrangement. So it sounds like to be a loose painter, you need something to look at. Is there anything else that you feel like you need to have as part of your process to stay loose or things that you don't do? Part of the looseness is I don't get overhung up in the details. If there's three flowers, I want to be authentic to the three flowers that are there. And occasionally I'll, I'll edit one out or whatnot, but I'm not trying to get every detail of the flower. I'm not trying to replicate a picture. I'm trying to let my brushstrokes be, this is a new object. I'm looking at something but the painting is its own object. It's its own entity. It's meant to be standing on its own, not a reference back to the source. It's its own thing in the world that it goes out to. So I don't care about accurately getting all the details like photorealism or getting so tight with it. Now, that being said, I want enough so it's, it's a recognizable image. It's a glass or it's a tablecloth. It's not just a field of color. And you can simplify it more and it becomes more abstraction, which is fine, but that's not the area that I tend to be going into at the moment. So the loose to me is letting the structure and the form of what I'm looking at remain, but letting the brushstrokes be bigger or smaller or more expressive than trying to get, because a lot in the end, is that a carnation or a rose? And that doesn't really matter, but it's a flower. It's a color. Sometimes it matters that I'm trying to show it's a rose. Other times it just, there's a color there. If I was really focused on the details and was tighter, less loose, I probably would make sure that you knew it was a rose and not a carnation, or you could identify the species. And I'm not as concerned with that. How does how you physically interact with the paint through brush strokes affect looseness? Because Whereas you might go in with one brush stroke and say, aha, done. Another artist, potentially less confident, may then go back in with four brush strokes or five brush strokes. So how did you learn to use fewer brush strokes and trust that that was enough? 
I might challenge that question a little bit. Does it matter if someone else uses four breaststrokes versus one breaststroke? Now, I think it does matter if you do what we call licking the canvas, where you are doing the same stroke over and over and over again in the same section, because that's really a confidence issue, not a determination issue. But if you build up your flower with four strokes and someone else builds it with one brush stroke, if you have the brush confidence and that's the way your art practice is going, then bravos. To me, that doesn't really matter because you could go either direction and that's really just comes down to you know personal preference and style. But if you're using the four brush strokes and over brushing, then I think it's a confidence issue and a security issue more than it's a choice. So small brush strokes or big brush strokes it's not limited brushstrokes. It's the right brushstrokes for your artistic temperament and the subject that's there. So it's that combination. Now, I try to use as few brushstrokes as possible just because I don't want to go in and repaint and repaint the sections over and over again. I want to try and get the gist of that object that I'm painting in one move, in two moves, in three moves. There's some exercise that we do in, in our online class where you try different size brushes or you can only do the painting in 20 strokes or 30 strokes or limiting yourself. And it's an artificial mechanism to think differently. But a lot of times we have students that come in and say they want to loosen up. First thing is great because you know we're loose artists. That tends to be how we approach the paint. But if you're photorealist and what excites you is getting into all the details, the nooks and crannies, then you need to be doing your nooks and crannies. That's who you are. You're going to see much more information than I ever see when I'm painting a subject. And that's how you interpret. If you say, well, I'm kind of stuck there. I want something different. Then great. Let's try these exercises. Let's try these techniques. Let's try some of these things and see what happens with it. Because you might find a whole new way of painting that frees you up in a different way. So four brushstrokes, one brushstroke, it's all brushstrokes. I'm going to repeat myself, but don't repeat yourself. So yeah, one thing I did notice, and I have a tendency when I get nervous, I keep talking and I keep saying the same thing. When I get nervous in painting, particularly in drawing ahead of time, if I'm looking at something and I'm not really paying attention and I go back and look at it and I'm trying to observe it and I end up going back and drawing the same exact line six times over the same piece. I'm not getting the shape right. So I draw the same thing again. Oh, that didn't work and do it again. And I'm not putting any variation. I'm just repeating myself. And I have a, a one big dark line that's saying the same exact thing, except now it's messy and it doesn't work anymore. Whereas before it could have worked. Now it really doesn't work. It's like you're stuttering and you just keep repeating yourself and you're nervous. So that can come across in your drawing and that can come across in your painting. Don't lick the canvas, put it down one time. And as a practical method, you could put one stroke step back, slow your process down, walk up to the easel, put one stroke, step back. Or if you're in a chair, sit back for a second, but just slow your pace down. So you're making decisions each time you put the paint down. You're intentional about where you're putting the paint. It may not work. Where you put the paint may not be the right spot, but think of it as intentionally, does this need it? Yes. Okay. Next stroke. Yes. Nope, it doesn't need that. Pause your mind to think about it instead of just jumping in. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Paint, paint. And that's kind of a knee-jerk reaction, but here's what I would do. Paint, look at it, evaluate it, and then paint more. 
the good thing is we now live in a time when we have an, a huge resource of being able to look at other people's paintings and seeing what works and what doesn't work from going to any of these online art museums. Most of the reputable art museums have online collections that you can peruse and look at, and you can just do Google image searches for paintings and see what works and what doesn't work. But what I would do is paint for a week. At the end of the week, look at everything you've done. And then not while you're doing the painting, but after you've done the painting, put your critique hat on and say, oh, what was my success here? Where did I do really good? And find those nuggets and then say, where can I improve? And I would want students to lead with the what worked instead of what didn't work. You know, it's the glass half full versus half empty because art making is vulnerable and we want to encourage ourselves and we want to look at where are our successes? What is working? I think this is a practice that really doesn't end because it's the do the work and then look at it. But I think you do have to have a little bit of time between making the work and then reviewing the work because as you're doing it, go with your gut, risk something, try it, push it, don't stall, put the paint down, walk away, put the paint down, walk away, put the paint down, walk away, then come back and look and say, oh, that, that worked good, but that part didn't, ooh, this was a success. I want to do more like that. But if you're doing it in the moment, I think you stall yourself. You know, put the music on, the leave me alone while I paint, 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 paint. Don't let any naysayers come in at that point. Don't get distracted. Just do the painting and then later come back and put the critique. And critique is usually looked at as a bad thing. Critiques in school were always a reprimand. It seems like it's a, oh, I'm in trouble. But critique is really a evaluation of what's working and the evaluation of what's not working. And critiques are something that you really need to learn to do for yourself, with yourself, for your art career. Because why do artists pin things up on the wall so they can look at it over, over time? It's so you can kind of say what's working, what's not working, what's inspiring, what's not. And that's one reason for it is so that you can sit and let it, let it gel and figure out what's working, what's not working. That's a form of critique. And it's a kind way of critique, but that's, that's what you need to do, I think. You can learn more about Brian Miller, including his workshops, at his website, www.brianmillerart.com, and on Instagram, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Brian. Thank you, Kelly. It was really great being here. I enjoyed my time with you. Thank you. So that's the end of the main feature, but guess what? There's more with Brian Miller. To hear the extended episode right now, where Miller talks about finding your style and offers great ideas on getting started with composition, head to patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast to learn more. Fans of the show love it and you will too. Check it out at patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast. Thank you to everyone over in the Podcast Art Club on Patreon. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, and Victoria Young. See you over on Patreon for the extended episode. Happy painting!